there's no such thing as an old movie if you haven't seen it yet. This is The Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. The movies have always been a part of Leonard Maltin's life. And while a career as a critic and historian was never the plan, he's been reporting on film for nearly 60 years. Safe to say, though it may not have been the plan, it was always in the cards. From fanzines to television, Leonard has been a part of the cultural film conversation for decades. And he continues to share his knowledge and passion for the medium on a weekly basis. We recently spoke with Leonard about his career, legacy, and the power of curiosity. Here's our conversation with Leonard Malton. I wanted to ask you about your passion for film, because that started very early for you. What exactly was it about entertainment, TV, and movies that appealed to you? Well, I am a child of the first television generation. I was born in December of 1950, so I don't remember a time when there wasn't a television set in our house. So I'm an I'm a authentic baby boomer, you know, post-World uh, post War II baby boomer. In fact, I have some recollections from when I was very, very young. Uh, our set was an old boxy wooden console television set that uh, no one of today's generation would recognize. And it had uh, little slats in the side where uh, with the uh, fabric over the speakers, like a speaker cushion. I thought that was a savings bank. So I put coins into those slots. I don't know what kind of damage I did to the set, but that's an early re- early recollection. So what got me hooked? Well, in those days, and I've used this term before, TV was a living museum of movies, especially for kids. Here they had all these hours of programming time to fill, and what were they going to fill it with? Well, they, they filled it with old cartoons. They filled it with old comedy shorts. They filled it with things that still mean a lot to me to this day, but they, they were just so much filler back then. I saw cartoons from every studio, Terry Toons, Van Buren cartoons, Ub Iwerks cartoons, Max Fleischer cartoons. And because I, I guess I had that kind of mind, whatever that kind of mind is, I made note of those names. I was curious about them. And and why does this one connect with that one? And why does this one look so different from that one? And that's what initially sent me on my path. So animation really was a first passion for you. Oh, yes. Along with comedy, because Laurel and Hardy were on every day. And uh, The Little Rascals, uh, Hal Roach's Our Gang comedies. And then later, The Three Stooges, all of that. And and last but not, certainly not least, there was Walt Disney hosting his own weekly hour-long television show. And as a kind of avuncular Pied Piper, leading us into his own history, into the history of the medium. How did he come to make Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? What was it like to make the first sound cartoon? I, you know, I learned all of this and more from him. 
So, you know, you developed this passion very, very early, but very few people would think to do anything with that more than just enjoy it. But you actually started a zine. What, what prompted you to do that? A desire to express myself. I was no good at sports. I hated sports, in fact, because I was so terrible at playing them, which I was forced to do at school, you know, in physical education. So I was an indoor kid. Uh, I liked to draw. At one time, I thought I might want to be a cartoonist, not an animator, but a magazine cartoonist. And our public library was walking distance of our house uh, in, in the suburbs of New Jersey just outside New York City. And the people in the children's room there were, the librarians were so nice. And when they saw how responsive I was, they led me to different things. And um, I was curious. I had curiosity. It's why I have so little patience for people with no curiosity. I don't mind. I mean, I'm not thrilled when I have a, a class full of students who don't know anything about film history. But I prefer that they not know anything than that they not be willing to learn something, not have at least a taste of uh, curiosity to find out more. And, and that's what I always wanted to do. I want to find out more. Is that what led you to journalism school? I got accepted at NYU. I, I applied to two colleges. How quaint is that? Two. I hear the adventures that my, you know... <laughs> my friends have had with their kids and their grandkids now. I lived, as I say, in the suburbs of New York. I applied to NYU and I applied to Columbia University. Columbia said no. NYU said yes. Solved. Uh, and, but NYU didn't then have an undergraduate program for film study, only for filmmaking. And that's not what, would, what was of interest to me. So I chose journalism because I'd already been doing, I'd, I'd already been writing and, as you say, publishing my own fanzine. And it seemed like the right way to go. And it was the, 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 a wonderful move because that department was all taught. All those courses were taught by working journalists in, in New York City. And we got the benefit of their world experience, their hard-earned world experience. And it was a kind of school where I was already writing articles for freelancing for magazines. I could turn in one of those articles as an assignment. Some schools really don't let you do that. They discourage it. No, 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 you do that on your own time later on. When you're here, you do your schoolwork. That wasn't their uh, outlook at all. Plus, we had a very professional daily newspaper. And I became an ed the entertainment editor uh, of, of that paper. So I wouldn't trade that for anything. And then icing on the cake is they let me cherry pick film courses that I wanted to take for credit. So I, I, I got the best of all worlds there. So was the plan always to write about entertainment, about film and television? Plan? Marina, no plan. I was just a kid. What did I know? I was doing what was fun. I was doing what I loved. I started writing and then there was a magazine, a newsstand magazine in those days called Famous Monsters of Filmland, which was crucial in my development and the development of other people in my relative age bracket. Steven Spielberg, Stephen King, 
George Lucas, list goes on and on. Wherever you bought your comic books or mad magazines, you would find famous monsters. I think it was when comics were 10 cents, it was 35 cents. But it was all about the golden age of horror and science fiction and fantasy films. So uh, it was heavily illustrated. And you see these photos from Fritz Lang's Metropolis. And you'd see photo essays on Lon Chaney and Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff opening these worlds of wonder. And it did just that for a whole lot of people. And one month, they actually surveyed the fanzine world and did reviews of four or five prominent fanzines. For those who've never heard the coined term, it's what it sounds like, fan magazine. Not just on film, there were science fiction fanzines, there were Tarzan fanzines, there were all kinds. But there were two that seemed to be right up my alley. And one was in Vancouver called Film Fan Monthly. And one was in Indiana, Pennsylvania, and was called The Eight Millimeter Collector. Uh, and that was for people who collected prints, eight millimeter prints of silent films. That was published by a furniture dealer in Indiana, PA, which happens to be Jimmy Stewart's hometown. But there was no one else around that he could talk to about, they could have you know conversation with about silent films. So he started this very modest publication as a means of communication with other like-minded people. And Daryl Davey, who edited and published Film Fan Monthly, well, I sent them both articles. I submitted cold articles to them both without telling them how old I was. After they said, yes, we like this, we'd be happy to publish it. I said, well, I, I, just so you know, I'm 13. And uh, uh, Sam Rubin in Indiana, PA said, well, I don't care. I like the article, keep sending more. And Daryl said, well, I'm 19. So I became a regular contributor to those magazines while still trying to keep mine going uh, using a mimeograph machine and building subscribers one by one through word of mouth and plugs we get in other publications. And uh, once two years had passed, Daryl, ne I never got to meet Daryl. Daryl wrote to me and said, I'm now making a full-time living and I don't have time to keep up this monthly pace. Would you want to take over my magazine? And take over meant inherit his subscription list of 400 readers, mostly U.S. and Canada, but also Australia, New Zealand, a couple of places in Western Europe. And so, yes, yeah, so I bought the magazine, air quotes, because he sent me a check for $225. So I inherited his magazine, his subscription list, and his treasury. And I was in the 10th grade at the time. This was like being given the keys to the kingdom. And there went my focus on schoolwork, gone. You go to school for journalism, film is still a huge part of your life. How do you think you're gonna make a living? Well, see, but, but at this time when I was in the 10th grade, I wasn't yet thinking about how to make a living. But in college, you must've been thinking about it. Well, yeah, a little more, but I still didn't know, plus which, when I was in my senior year of high school, about to graduate, in fact, that spring, uh, an English teacher in my school had given me a piece of paper with a name on it, a phone number. 
said, this is an old dear friend of mine. He's an editor at Signet Books in New York. Call him after school and make an appointment to go see him. I just think the two of you would hit it off. That was her only goal was to to sort of play matchmaker for for us two. And the day I met him and we were breaking the ice, he said, oh, he already knew my magazine and he was looking for somebody to do a rival version of a book that existed with the thousands of little capsule movie reviews between the pages of a paperback book. And he hired me that afternoon. Now, it took time to process a contract and all of that. But I was 17 years old. And he, he didn't tell his bosses he was hiring. So they wrote the contract to Film Fan Monthly, the name of my magazine. And so it was not co-signed by Guardian or Adult. It probably was invalid when I look back on it. But and, and once I started turning in chunks of the book and he saw that I was doing an adequate job, he was able to tell the people he worked for what he had done. And he said, so what are you going to do now? I said, well, I was accepted at NYU this fall. I guess I'm going to college. And I was a very straight arrow, still am, kind of guy who says, wait here. I wait here. And I was supposed to go to college. That was inherent in the family agenda. And he said, what what are you going to go to college for? I just gave you a job. I said, well, I'm supposed to. So I did. And And I'm glad I had the experience because it's, of course, it's a socialization process. You know, it's not just book learning. And I made lifelong friends there and it meant a great deal to me as a human being uh, maturing uh, at that moment to, uh, to, to, to go to NYU. So uh, I, I still wasn't thinking about a job. Mind you, I also continued to freelance articles for the occasional magazine, professional magazine. And when I got out of college in the spring of 1972, I didn't know what to do. I was still living at home, so I was not you know, paying my expenses. So it let me float financially for a while. And, but I put myself through uh, college because the checks that came in for doing that first edition of what became my movie guide uh, paid my tuition. And I, I talked to friends. I wasn't completely unrealistic. I said, making a living as a freelance is very hard. I guess maybe I could teach. I could teach some sort of film class. And already, way back then, friends said to me, oh, if you haven't got a master's or a PhD, you're going to find it very tough going to get a job. And the last thing I want to do is to spend one more minute in a classroom. That was just anathema to me. So I didn't. And I kind of fumbled along. And then I started getting work through a fluke, writing a promotional copy for a couple of TV companies that syndicated old movies and TV series. And I found that I had an affinity for writing copy, which is not the same as writing. <laughs> I wrote uh, catalog copy for, for Viacom for packages of old movies and such. And of course, none of this was attributed. None of it was signed. It was anonymous work, but it paid 
so much better than any real writing that I was doing. I mean, I, after a few, I did like four books in a row in successive years. What an incredibly lucky break or series of breaks. But I realized that I might have done better financially working behind the counter at Arby's. There wasn't much money to be made writing film books, though they gave me enormous satisfaction and helped build my reputation. And uh, some of them are still in print even. And um, the plan sort of presented itself bit by bit. I still don't have a plan. You came into the, the film industry and criticism just as that was taking off and really becoming its own thing. There were so many fresh voices in the 70s writing about film and elevating the medium, and you were right in the middle of all of that. Well, I was. I, I mean, I met Andrew Saris, and I met, you know, some of the, uh, the lions of that period. I only had one phone conversation with Pauline Kael. It was a nice conversation, but I didn't get to meet her. But yeah, it was a time when film criticism seemed to matter, just as the arrival of new films seemed to matter. I remember, uh, it was last year or the year before I lose track with the pandemic, that the Academy honored Lena Wertmuller, the great Italian filmmaker. And I can remember vividly, I got married to my wife, Alice, in 1975, when swept away her very provocative film about sexual politics came out and it was just all anyone was talking about in New York at that time. Have you seen Swept Away? What do you think about male point of view, female point of view? And then she followed it with an even more brilliant film called Seven Beauties, starring the great Giancarlo Giannini. You know, these were like cultural events. I mean, Top Gun is a wonderful movie, the new Top Gun Maverick. But it's not a cultural event. <laughs> and it's not rose-colored glasses. It really uh, was different then. You're plugging along writing about film. When does the opportunity to go on TV present itself? Serendipity. Uh, serendipity is the word. Um, the... the um, the Sherman Brothers, who wrote all those great songs for Disney, wrote a song once called Serendipity, which they defined as the art of happy accidents. And uh, I am a product of serendipity. When someone asks me, how do you break into publishing? What am I going to tell them? Find a school teacher who has a friend who's an editor, go to see him after school one day, you know. Same thing with television. My only television experience, and it was not inconsequential, but my only TV experience was as an author going on talk shows trying to promote my books. Not useless, but not the same thing as, you know, as what eventually came to pass. I got booked on the Today Show here in the States, and uh, that's our major national morning shows. And they had a longtime co-host, was also their film critic named Gene Shalit very colorful guy who later was lampooned hilariously by Eugene Levy uh, on SCTV. I was promoting a book I wrote called The Great Movie Comedian. He comes into the green room that morning and they've done a pre-interview with me to suss out which questions got the best answers. He said, do I have to stick to this list? 
I said, no, ask me anything you like, because I felt confident enough to do that. Well, apparently, we had a very lively, fun, upbeat conversation. 3,000 miles away in Los Angeles, a guy who was working for Paramount Television as a researcher saw me and called the newly hired executive producer of a new show, still in its first season called Entertainment Tonight. And he called this man a, a lifelong newspaper editor and said, um, you're looking for a film critic, aren't you? Jim said, yes. And this fellow said, well, I saw a guy on the Today Show today. I think you ought to check him out. So my phone rang in New York a few days later, and my wife, Alice, picked up the phone uh, and said, this fellow said, hi, I'm Bruce Cook from Entertainment Tonight. May I speak to Leonard Malton? She said, may I ask what it's in reference to? She was good. She's still good. He said, employment. She said, yours or his? He said, his. She said, in that case, I'll put him right on. And to make a long story very short, they flew me out to L.A. to audition for them. They didn't tell me they were auditioning me as a film critic. They just said audition, whatever that turned out to be. And uh, I flew out here. I'm speaking to you from Los Angeles. I flew out here and I met this new prospective boss. And he said, so can you tape two movie reviews for us tomorrow morning? And at that moment, my mind flashed back to all the books I'd read about the early silent film days in Hollywood. And every morning, the assistant director would go to the front gate. And there'd be a little crowd of people. And he'd say, you, can you ride a horse? And if you wanted to make three bucks that day, it's an extra. You said, yes, whether you could or not. So he said, so can you write and record two movie reviews for us tomorrow morning? I said, yes, sir. And he, he gave me a segment producer to walk me through the process of how to prepare a film review for television with a film clip included and a voiceover section and all that. And the next morning, 8.30 in the morning, in the studio audience that Merv Griffin was still using to tape his nightly talk show, I recorded my first two film reviews. And then that afternoon, I took the plane home to New York. And the next day, Alice and I flew to Columbus for something called the Sin Event, a film buff gathering. And I was in the dealer's room looking at eight by 10 stills and other collectibles. And a guy said, hey, you were good on TV last night. I said, on TV? He said, yeah. I said, doing what? I said, doing a film review? He said, yeah. They ran my first review. The Day after I taped it, it was uh, it was legal. I signed a release. They were going to pay me union scale, but it would have been nice if they told me. We got home from Columbus, Ohio, from that convention, and our answering machine, which was then a reel-to-reel tape, was full. Relatives I hadn't spoken to in years, friends, all sorts of people, and one lucid friend in particular said they welcomed you as their new film critic. So the next morning when I called this fellow Bruce Cook from Entertainment Tonight, I said, does this mean I got the job? He said, no, we're still waiting for the executives at Paramount to decide. They're going to decide soon because they really want somebody in this slot. But we figured the review was current. We ought to run it. Three nights later, they ran the second review. 
and again failed to tell me. And my, my wife said, you know what's going to happen? I said, no. She said, next week when they realize they don't have another review, they're going to call you and fly you out to L.A. again. And that's exactly what happened. So I, I always say, because I, I ended up staying there 30 years, I, I always say if that's how they treat you before they hire you, you can't complain that, that it's a crazy place to work once they do hire you. In the 30 years that you were there, you covered all of the big films. You talked to all of the big stars, all of the big directors. Do you have any highlights or anything that sticks out that's particularly memorable about your time with Entertainment Tonight? Everything was a highlight. The one I always cite as my personal favorite uh, was getting to interview Catherine Hepburn in her home, in her brownstone in the East 40s Manhattan. Uh, next door to Stephen Sondheim, apparently, which I didn't know at the time. And uh, at that time, she was not doing television interviews. She just made a TV movie for NBC and had agreed to do a few brief interviews to promote it. One with the Today Show and one with, with us. And my bosses chose me to do it because they, they thought I was you know, the right guy to do that. And at the time, she had not uh, gone public about her long relationship with Spencer Tracy, but it came up in conversation, not for me. I just asked about privacy. And in answering, she said, well, you know, Spencer and I never went out in public, not in 26 years. So we never gave them an opportunity to make hay with that. Then the, the press was always very nice to us, she said unforgettable day, one of the great days of my life. And then I got to talk to her three or four times again. You've long been a supporter and worked very hard with film preservation and education. When did this become a key component of your career? When I was a kid, I started collecting eight millimeter movies. That's what I would save my money for. If a birthday present was coming, it's what I'd ask my parents to get me. And I Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin and Laurel Hardy movies and, and things like that, and would show them at the drop of a hat to anybody who would sit still and watch. And then I forget what I forget how and why, but I started getting friendly with some of the people in the Museum of Modern Art Film Department in New York. That I think is when I first started to understand and appreciate that world, the world of film archivism and its peccadilloes, and its perils, and its problems. And I'm still learning. I've had the opportunity to help promote, I guess, or promote understanding of that and wave the flag. I'm on the board of the uh, National Film Preservation Foundation here in the States, which disperses money to archives large and small to save and preserve films. And I, and I talk and write about it as, as much as I can. For you, why is it so important that we remember this history? I could quote aphorisms for you about, you know, New York Magazine once did one of their word competitions where they uh, asked you to, to change a, a, a famous saying by just changing one letter or one word. The entry I liked was, 
those who don't remember the pasta are condemned to reheat it. You, you know, how can you move forward if you don't know uh, what has preceded? Everybody should know Georges Méliès films is, is not just the famous one where the rocket gets stuck in the eye of the moon, the man in the moon's face. I mean, that should be, that should be kindergarten teaching. And there are all the steps along the way toward wherever it is we are now. Film literacy is still not a priority across the board in our educational systems, at least as far as I know, but it ought to be. You know, why are we still reading Shakespeare? Why are we still reading Mark Twain? Why are we still listening to Beethoven? Why are we listening to uh, Dr. John or Little Richard or, uh, or the Beatles or uh, Charlie Parker? It's not a question of preserving antiquities. It's a matter of being aware of what, what has uh, come before as a source of knowledge and as a source of inspiration. Knowing what you were leaving behind, do, do you ever scare yourself? No, I don't think I scare myself. I'm thrilled to be able to continue to learn things about films and filmmakers I thought I already knew all there was to know about. This idea of lifelong learning is something that seems to be disappearing a little bit. So it's wonderful to see that you still have that passion. I hope you're wrong. Maybe it takes some years of living to get to a place in your life where you've passed the novice stage and have lived through the experience stage and get to yet another stage. Uh, I don't know what we'll call that. Uh, I don't want it to sound uh, like I'm uh, headed for the last roundup <laughs> yet, but I don't know, mature, mature stage? I don't know. It's, and it's really about finding something that you're passionate about, right? Because once you have that passion, you want to search out that history and how was that done and find out a little bit more about it. My mentor, my hero and mentor was a wonderful man named William K. Everson, who was a film collector, film scholar, and film teacher. He, he wrote a number of books and the books are all good. But Bill was at his best moving about in the world. Uh, he taught at NYU for many, many years. But he, he traveled a kind of a circuit of film archives and museums around the globe, bringing 16-millimeter prints that he had found with him of, of, of rare movies. And like Johnny Appleseed, perhaps. I don't mean that to be a flippant reference, but really planting seeds, introducing people. To him, acquiring a print of a rare film was not the end. It was the turning point. The end for him was sharing it. That's what he was all about. And I owe so much to him because he introduced me to filmmakers I wouldn't have been familiar with otherwise and to films and, and performers I wouldn't have known. I think about him all the time. Speaking about sharing your passion and your knowledge, one of the things that I find really fascinating is that you have, over the course of your career, moved with the times. 
uh, as technology has advanced, you've kind of moved with it. You know, you went from print to TV and now to the next thing, which is the internet and podcasts, which I think is so amazing because you're continuing to share your passion. In those transitions, you've also seen the industry change quite a bit over the course of, you know, a 40-year career. Are we moving in the right direction? Are things getting better? Uh, I am by nature an optimist, or I used to be (laughs) an optimist. I'm not a pessimist. I I like to think I'm a realist. My daughter, Jessie, has become my partner in crime. She, She does all my social media outreach, is the co-host of uh, our weekly uh, audio podcast. We just posted a new episode this morning interviewing George Stevens Jr., who has a new book out, a new autobiography. We had a wonderful conversation with him. And we do a live stream every Sunday afternoon at 2 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And then they live on on YouTube in particular. And these are just informal gatherings where I talk about my adventures of the week just passed and are our adventures and answer questions from people. And if Jesse weren't here, I don't know that I would be as open as I am or as conversant as I am, as little as that may be, uh, with, with new media. But no, I, I embrace it all. It's, uh, I wish I had more time. Really, truly, I wish I had, I mean, I just posted my review of Top Gun Maverick yesterday. I want to get that posted earlier, but ran out of time. Time and energy sometimes. I like very much having a soapbox, having an outlet or several outlets. I think it's wonderful that you're working so closely with your daughter. When did you realize that? No. (laughs) However you're going to complete that question, the answer is no. Neither of us saw this coming. Clearly, I mean, she grew up in that, with a family that loves film and entertainment. Both you and your wife are film lovers. Did, did that start early on for her as well? No more so, I think. Well, I guess more so. <laughs> film is such a big part. When, when, I, when I, Alice and I started, we talked about getting married on our second date. Let me put it that way. In July of 1974. And when I told people I'd met this wonderful woman, and we were thinking about getting married. They said, uh, well, does she like movies? I said, how could I be in love with or have a long-term relationship with someone who didn't love movies? Because I knew, and she had already met the equivalent of football widows. And I'm not being sexist. I'm being very specific. It was mostly guys, almost entirely guys at that time, who were so passionate and such monomaniacs that their their spouses were sort of left behind. And that wasn't the kind of relationship we uh, could have or or wanted to have. So Jesse has grown up, yes, in this atmosphere. Also, when we moved from New York to LA, Alice and I, we, we moved out here with virtually no family on this coast. So Jesse grew up with a surrogate family people to whom she feels very close, some of whom she's known her entire life, who are fellow movie nuts, almost all of them specialists. <laughs> there's the animation guy, there's the musical historian, there's the, you know, that kind of thing. 
So she soaked up a lot of this by osmosis. But when people ask her questions like, are you going to follow in your father's footsteps? She says, no, it sounds like an obvious question to them, but not so much to her. She's her own person. She has her own interests. And now she's a mother. She's made Alice and me grandparents. And we all live together in the same house with her, with my son-in-law. And um, we're going to poison another generation. <laughs> there are worse things to poison a generation with than a passion for film. I'm wondering if there's one thing or a couple of things that you've learned from Jesse in the years that you've been working for, with her that have surprised you? I'll give you her answer, because I've heard her ask this question before. I'm trained as a journalist, and I was, I've been steeped in those uh, protocols and parameters. So it means that I'm not part of the story. And there's like a little bit of journalistic distance. She has made me more in terms of personal communication, putting myself in the vehicle, telling a, a, a story or reporting an, an incident or talking about a film festival or about a new Blu-ray release or about what's streaming now. So she has broken down some of those barriers in my head. And, uh, you know, I'm an older dog, so it takes me a little longer to learn the newer tricks, but I'm not unwilling. And she has, you know, gently shoved me in that direction to my benefit. You were diagnosed with uh, Parkinson's in 2015. Why was it important to you to share that with the world? It happened in two stages. Uh, I first uh, found that I, my my left hand was um, was shaking during on stage interviews. I host a lot of you know Q and A sessions here in LA and elsewhere, and people are, observe things and make remarks and spread rumors and all that. And my doctor said it was a benign tremor. That's all it was. And there wasn't a lot to be done for it. And it didn't hurt. So when, when I had my wits about me, I would say something before starting one of those panels and say, look, folks, I have a benign tremor. I hope you don't find it distracting. It, it doesn't trouble me. I don't want it to trouble you. That's when I was lucid and remembered to say that kind of thing. But then about a year later, I went for my annual physical and my internist looked, at, looked me over and said, I think you do have Parkinson's. We went back and did the same test again with the rheumatologist and learned that, in fact, I, I have it. And uh, I, I wasn't going to tell anybody in particular, uh, but I got a phone call from, a, from an acquaintance who was writing for the AARP website, the American Association for Retired People. He had just spoken to Alan Alda, who had gone public with the news that he was dealing with Parkinson's. And he asked me my reaction, and I gave him my reaction. And Alice and Jesse were in the room when I was answering that phone call. And I looked at them. They looked at me, and I said, and I've got it too. You know, it just seemed if this, you know, prominent, you know, respected and well-liked actor could uh, come clean, there's no reason for me not to. Spur of the moment, actually. Have you found that sharing your story has helped you deal with it? Well, in the sense that I don't have to hide anything, it has. It uh, hasn't made a big difference to, to me 
you know, it's, it's troubling to my family. It's a degenerative disease and it's troubling to my family because um, I'm a little slower than I, than I used to be. And sometimes I'll go into a bit of a fog. My, my movements are not always as fluid as they were. That uh, it scares them and it concerns them. So it's, it's more on a personal level and a public level. But the, my most recent book, I made a point of saying, I not only wrote this book, I typed it. Well, and I think that that's what's so impressive is the fact that you're still out there. You're still, you know, sharing your knowledge and your passion for film in a very public way. And I think that's so inspiring. If it is, I'm glad, you know, and if it gives somebody solace or comfort or inspiration of some sort, then I'm very, very glad of that. I just want to keep doing what I've been doing as long as I can. You've already mentioned one of the highlights of your time at Entertainment Tonight, but I'm wondering over the course of your career, what has been the one thing that has really been your best moment? Oh, my best moment? I don't know. Well, a Turner Classic Movies just paid me an extraordinary tribute at the TCM Classic Film Festival uh, just weeks ago. They, uh, they developed an award in the name of their longtime host, uh, Robert Osborne, who was not just the figurehead and sort of the face of that network, but someone I knew and respected and liked. He was the real deal. He was not just reading cue cards. He was a lifelong movie buff and extremely knowledgeable and well-traveled and, um, a genuine friend to a lot of people from Hollywood's golden age, period he loved and I loved too. They gave this award first to, I think, four years ago to Martin Scorsese and then to the great British film historian Kevin Brownlow and now to me. So I'm in exceptionally good company. That's very flattering, very flattering. And they, they did a beautiful tribute to me and uh, some of which I think is posted online. And it was presented to me by Warren Beatty, uh, who is uh, no slouch. (laughs) We never talked about this, but, you know, as someone that clearly had a passion, and even if it wasn't planned, it it seems like film was always going to be a part of your career or your life going forward. Did your parents, were they ever concerned? Do they ever wonder what's going to happen to Leonard? Is he going to be okay? They were very proud and they were very encouraging. That's my best advice to anybody. Have encouraging parents. If you can choose your parents, choose a mother and father who will encourage you in what you want to do. And and I was lucky in that. And they lived long enough to see my success. that, That was nice. I don't know if they ever, what, if any, their concerns might have been for my livelihood because I had no as I say I had no fallback position and you see these hands this is an audio interview so it's not gonna mean much these hands have never done honest labor there are no calluses I wanted to finish by asking you a little bit about comfort films as someone that you know takes in so much media and has such a vast history of film and knowledge what do you turn to when you need a pick-me-up 
I turn to Turner Classic Movies more often than anything else. I have a uh, exercise bike set up with a large screen TV and a Blu-ray player and all of that. And in the morning when I want to do my exercise on the cycle, the first thing I do is I turn on TCM, see what's playing. And if it's something I know already uh, and like, perfect. Because all I need is something to divert me, you know, while I'm cycling. And if it's not something I like or want to see or a film I actually do want to concentrate on more fully and see from the very beginning, then I'll put in a, a, a disc and maybe watch a making of bonus feature or something like that. My sweet spot is the 1930s. Two, the two decades that are most meaningful to me are the 1930s, when so much, well, there's so much about it that I, that I love. The bit players, the, the, the Art Deco sets, the, you know, the, the underscoring, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All the character actors. Uh, and the 70s, that incredible decade that I lived through, that I experienced firsthand, unlike the 30s, uh, when so much talent blossomed. Robert Altman, Francis Coppola, George Lucas, uh, Steven Spielberg, Michael Ritchie, uh, Peter Bogdanovich, Robert Benton, on and on and on and on and on. And so when I have filmmaker guests at my class at the University of Southern California, and they say that their touchstone is uh, films of the 70s, I say, good, you've chosen good role models. Do you think it gets harder as you move further and further away from the 70s to have that response? It seems that every generation, the movies get younger. <laughs> well, sure. There's the inevitable passage of time, and that we'd like it sometimes to stand still for just a little while. As, you know, there's no such thing as an old movie if you haven't seen it yet. It's the same said about jokes. If you haven't heard the joke, it's a new joke. I get discouraged when people get nostalgic about the 80s or the 90s. Like, hey, I was there. They weren't so hot. Advice for young filmmakers or film lovers, what would you tell them? Watch as much as you can. Take advice from people who make suggestions, or, you know, lists, lots of good lists out there of what to see, different periods. Be open-minded and don't forget to have fun. Don't forget to enjoy the experience. And that was our conversation with film critic and historian Leonard Malton. You can read, watch, and listen to all of Leonard's reviews on his website at leonardmalton.com. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits by Michael Edlin. Editing and additional production support by Joshua Peterman. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.